the land of podcast telling. Two guys, a man and a boy, traveled down the worn, weary path to tell the story to the most multitudes. Okay, I think we finally found our new theme song. Yeah, that's beautiful. Do you think I could have been a minstrel when I was younger? Or sorry, if I had been back in the olden times and younger? No, you would have been a Morris dancer. What's with that? Those, with those bells. They were uh, dancers and they would have bells and do this kind of intricate dance. How long do you think I would have lasted in the medieval ages before being killed? Or being succumbed to syphilis. Yes. Right? What age? I think 14. <laughs> Middle age. All I ever think of when I think of that era is just disease. It was such a horrible time to be alive. Poxes and scarlet fever and polio. Did you ever read Michael Crichton's Timeline? I've not ever read a Michael Crichton book. Oh, it's a fun book. It's it's like scientists do figure out how to go back in time and they land in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. And it's horrible. Like they have a soldier with them, but it's just so violent. And there's so many things that can kill you. I would not want to go back there. And there's no electricity. It would smell so bad. But your diet would be much different. Heavy, fatty stuff. Meat and bread and cheese. Beer. Well, in, in Europe, right? Yes. All right, uh, Riley. Yes. Uh, welcome back uh, to the show. You went on a long hiatus. You were where? I won't give specifics, but I one of my jobs is that I'm the manager of all of the actors at a Halloween farm. And that's where I was. To the listener, you don't realize, we actually took, without you knowing, good listener, a break. We had pre-recorded a, a bunch of episodes and we took a break and, and we're back. Riley uh, almost burnt himself out, though in that break, it wasn't much of a break for you. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty intense. We're, we're happy to be recording this tonight and uh, very excited. I actually have, Riley, a very big episode tonight. Good. Yeah, so I don't want to do a, a huge uh, preamble here before diving into it. Uh, I'd like to keep this episode under six hours. <laughs> Uh, I hope you have some lozenges because you're going to need to keep that voice fresh. I've got a good glass right here of lemonade with crushed ice. It's a large glass. See, it's almost as big as my head. And you're in your new studio. I'm in my brand new studio, which is finally complete in my new house. And it's beautiful. And it is acoustic- beautiful. It's acoustically wonderful. You'll probably hear my voice. Um, when I edit this down, it's going to sound different than it usually does because the acoustic properties here, it's not as bright as the room I was in. Yeah, you sound sounds that nice. That room was awful. It was awful. Well, and you looked so unhappy in there. <laughs> well, it was tiny. Horrible place. It was t- It was a li- our little tiny guest room. And you sounded terrible. I, I am terrible. You are so terrible. Yes. I sounded like what I am. Let's mm-hmm. just put that on the table and It was like holding it. up a mirror. It was to my soul, you know, and, yeah. and there's, there's a lot to unpack there. All right, look, Riley, let's dive into this here. Okay, I have no idea what you're doing. You don't, it. actually. Normally, we, we talk right before we record mm-hmm. our uh, episode, and, and tonight we didn't. Talk about I love when the topics are secret. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of getting a package at your door. And you know it's something from Amazon, but you don't know what item you ordered. That's like every time. I yeah, me never... too. And I'm like, what is it? Oh, good. It's the doorbell. Mm-hmm. Anyway, hit me, brother. Hit this me. one involves possibly one of, well, it is the most famous and mysterious plane crashes in recent history. Maybe of all time. Plane crash. I, I mean, this is one that when I mention it, you're going to go, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I remember that, I think. But I didn't realize before diving in how complex and how baffling and unsettling this story is. Okay. And, Ooh. and, and one of the things I do sort of want to 
bring up at the beginning, like, why do we find plane crashes so fascinating? Because it's terrifying. Right? And it's also, Dan, way out of the realm of our everyday experience. Yes. Right? And, and I think also, too, the fact that so many people lose their lives instantly, right? Yeah, Hundreds yeah. of people gone, just like that. And for me, I know, too, that it's the idea that you are traveling in something that you have no control over. Mm-hmm. Your life is literally in the hands of strangers. And technology. On technology and Mother Nature, right? Because those first two things can be working fine and Mother Nature gets involved and you're screwed. Do you know what I always think of every time there's a plane crash? I always think of what it would have been like to have been in the seat 10, 15 seconds before it all went down. That's where I always go. Well, and isn't that the other part of it is that with movies and things that we've watched, it seems like you know you're going to die and you've got yeah. time to think about it. Yeah, yeah. A car crash is fast. A car you control generally, you know, you're on the ground. So there's a lot of factor, death factors that are taken out when you're traveling by car or train. Yes, yes. Or bus or whatever, right? So this story centers around uh, the mystery of the Malaysian Air Flight 370, uh, which crashed in 2014 and has been a focus of continued investigation and a source of sometimes feverish public speculation. Now, this is the plane that's never been found. Correct. Oh, I've often wondered about that. I'm excited because I've wondered about this so many times. Right. So was I. And I, I, and I knew the, the general strokes of the story, but I didn't know the details. And yeah. this was a big one. There was a lot to unpack and a lot of different sources that needed to be checked out. So this qualifies as, uh, you know, belongs in our cabinet of curiosities. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And we've talked about disappearances before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not exclude. I don't, well, no, I shouldn't say that. The Mary Celeste was a kind of disappearance. But this is a big one. This is a really strange Mm -hmm. disappearance. And it's a story that combines the horror and awe, you know, of plane crashes and an unsolved mystery that has perplexed everybody who's tried to solve it. Well, they're still looking, aren't they? There are, yes, sort of. Yeah. There are amateur explorers. There's no official investigation anymore. It's too expensive. Yeah, of course. Okay, hit me, brother. Okay, here we go. So at 12.42 a.m. on the quiet moonlit night of March 8th, 2014, a Boeing 777 or, or 777 operated by Malaysia Airlines took off from Kuala Lumpur and turned toward Beijing, so northeast climbing to its assigned cruising altitude of 35,000 feet. Mm. The designator for Malaysia Airlines is MH. So the flight, and the flight number was 370. So you're going to hear me referring to MH370. That's the flight and, and it's that plane that I'm referring to. Farik Hamid, the first officer, was flying the airplane. He was 27 years old. This was a training flight for him and his last one. He would be fully certified after this flight. So this guy is an experienced... Uh, officer. His trainer was the pilot in command, a man named Zahari Ahmed Shah, who at 53 was one of the most senior captains at Malaysia Airlines. In the cabin were 10 flight attendants, all of them Malaysian. They had 227 passengers to care for, including five children. Mm -hmm. Most of the passengers were Chinese. Of the rest, 38 were Malaysian. And in descending order, the others came from Indonesia, Australia, India, France, the United States, Iran, Ukraine, Canada, New Zealand, the Netherlands, Russia, and Taiwan. As mentioned, First Officer Farik flew the airplane while Captain Zahari handled the radios. Zahari's transmissions, however, were a bit unusual. 
At 1.01 a.m., he radioed that they had leveled off at 35,000 feet. A superfluous report in radio surveilled airspace where the norm is to report leaving an altitude, not arriving at one. At 1.08, the flight crossed the Malaysian coastline and set out across the South China Sea in the direction of Vietnam. Zahari again reported the plane's level at 35,000 feet. Again, odd, but didn't cause any alarm bells to go off. It's just not usually what you do. Okay. 11 minutes later, as the airplane closed in on a waypoint near the start of Vietnamese air traffic jurisdiction, the controller at Kuala Lumpur Center radioed, Malaysian 370, contact Ho Chi Minh 120.9. Good night. Zahari answered, Good night. Malaysian 370. He did not read back the frequencies he should have, but otherwise the transmission sounded normal. It was the last the world heard from MH370. The pilots never checked in with Ho Chi Minh or answered any of the subsequent attempts to raise them. Primary radar relies on simple raw pings off objects in the sky, right? It's that basic mm. radar that we think back to like World War II movies. It's pinging, it bounces back, and they can register roughly where an object is. Did you know that's my dad's area of expertise? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, I did know that. That's what he did. Smart man. Well, he did father you. Oh, He had to look be wily you. to survive all those years with you. In the now, house. see, I thought... I thought for a second there was a just the smallest ray of pleasantry, and then uh, the clouds came in and yeah. shat on me. I am so good at that. Yeah, you're backhanded arse. Oh, yeah. All right. So air traffic control systems use what is known as secondary radar. You're, I'm sure your dad, we should have had your dad as a guest on this show. He'd love that. He would love Wouldn't it. Wouldn't that have been cool? Yeah. yeah. We should have uh, an episode where both our dads. Oh, that'd be fun. They could host instead of us. My dad could tell dirty jokes and your father will... Talk about war books. War books, yeah. Perfect combination. Mm -hmm. So air traffic control systems use what is known as secondary radar. So this is a bit more complex than primary radar. And it depends on a transponder signal that is transmitted by each airplane and contains richer information. For instance, the airplane's identity and altitude that than what a primary radar could do. Five seconds after MH370 crossed into Vietnamese airspace, the symbol representing its transponder dropped from the screens of, Mal of Malaysian air traffic control. And 30 sec seconds later, the entire airplane disappeared from secondary radar. The time was 1.21 a.m., 39 minutes after takeoff. The controller in Kuala Lumpur was dealing with other traffic elsewhere on his screen and simply didn't notice. When he finally did, he assumed that the airplane was in the hands of Ho Chi Minh, somewhere out beyond his range. Mm -hmm. The Vietnamese controllers, meanwhile, saw MH370 cross into their airspace and then disappear from radar. They apparently misunderstood a formal agreement by which Ho Chi Minh was supposed to inform Kuala Lumpur immediately if an airplane that had been handed off was more than five minutes late checking in. They tried repeatedly to contact the aircraft to no avail. By the time they picked up the phone to inform Kuala Lumpur, 18 minutes had passed since MH370's disappearance from their radar screens. This is not how this should have been played out. Kuala Lumpur's Aeronautical Rescue Coordination Center should had been notified within an hour of the disappearance. By 2.30 a.m., it had still not been. Four more hours elapsed before an emergency response finally begun at 6.32 a.m. 
At that moment, the airplane should have been landing in Beijing. The search for it was initially concentrated in the South China Sea between Malaysia and Vietnam. It was an international effort by 34 ships and 28 aircraft from seven different countries. Wow. But MH370 was nowhere near there. Within a matter of days, primary radar records salvaged from air traffic control computers partially corroborated by secret Malaysian Air Force data revealed that as soon as MH370 disappeared from secondary radar, as soon as it disappeared, it turned sharply to the southwest, flew back across the Malay Peninsula. So it essentially doubled back. It went back the direction it was coming from. Okay. And banked around the island of Penang. From there, it flew northwest up the Strait of Malacca. So the Strait of Malacca separates Malaysia and Indonesia. Okay. So instead of flying, continuing to fly and crossing into Indonesian airspace, it sort of stayed in that body of water. So, so it flew, it's called the Andaman Sea, where it faded beyond radar range into obscurity. So it crosses and then did something. That part of the flight took more than an hour to accomplish and suggested that this was not a standard case of a hijacking, nor was it like an accident or pilot suicide scenario that anyone had encountered before. From the start, MH370 was leading investigators in unexplored directions. And this is something that I didn't realize. Like, I I knew that the plane had crashed. I knew that they had trouble finding, but I didn't realize why. It's because it didn't, it, it didn't go in the direction, it wasn't going in the direction it was supposed to. That I knew, and there's no explanation of, as to why they did that. None. So the idea that a sophisticated machine with its modern instruments and redundant communications could simply vanish seems beyond the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. In this day and age, it's almost impossible for even individuals to remove digital traces, right? Like we're constantly being monitored in a way. Yeah. And for a plane a ultra-modern 777 to just vanish off the face of the planet is super weird. And this disappearance has provoked a host of theories as to what happened. Well, I also assume, and you might be getting to this point later in your narrative, but I also assume that airplanes have tons of SOS devices and signals and locator beacons and things that um, are there to help locate them in times of distress. They do. They have so many. And that's some of the redundancies, right? There's so many different ways that they should have been able to track this airplane and find uh-huh. it. All of them failed. Wow. And it's and that is weird. I cannot wait to hear the speculation. So this is seven years. And to this day, the whereabouts of the crash, if it crashed, if it crashed, remains unknown. If it crashed. If it crashed. Oh, maybe it's in another dimension. Well... I don't know about that, but there's some interesting theories out there. So let's dive into the actual investigation, which uh, transpired right fairly quickly after the plane went missing. Dive away, my friend. Dive, dive. Despite reflexive denials by Malaysian officials and outright obfuscation, I love that word, by the Malaysian Air Force, the truth about the airplane's strange flight plan quickly began to emerge. It turned out that MH370 had continued to link up intermittently with an Indian Ocean satellite operated by a company called Inmarsat for six hours after the airplane disappeared from secondary radar. This meant that the airplane had not suddenly suffered some catastrophic event. It didn't crash when it went missing, right? Which you would automatically think, oh, it's disappeared while it's crashed. Can I ask you for some clarity there? So you're saying it was operational for six hours after it disappeared? Correct. Oh. At least six hours. 
During those six hours, it is presumed to have remained in high-speed, high-altitude cruising flight. The Inmarsat link-ups, some of them known as handshakes, were routine connections that amounted to the merest whisper of communication because the intended contents of the system, such as passenger entertainment, cockpit, uh, cockpit texts, that's hard, that's a tongue, cockpit texts. That's really hard to say, cockpit texts. Uh, automated maintenance reports had been isolated or switched off. So all of these things that normally would just automatically happen as it's passing these different uh, uh, handshake moments were gone. None of these things were happening. So what they're getting is these very faint whispers of where this plane might have been. And I'll get into that in a moment. All told, there were seven link-ups, two initiated automatically by the airplane and five others initiated automatically by the Inmarsat ground station. There were also two satellite phone calls. They went unanswered, but provided additional data. So people trying to call someone on the plane, it was the, and it was the, the co-pilot. Okay. Uh, he didn't answer, but I guess they could very roughly gauge, and I say roughly like it's a massive swath of the planet where it might have uh, been coming from. These connections have helped investigators glean uh, where the plane was heading in a very, very, very general way. The first and most accurate of these connections is known as the burst timing offset. And this is going to sound too technical and I'm not going to spend too much time in this. Uh, and I've really had to pare this down because my head hurt as I was reading it. <laughs> okay. It is a measure of the transmission time. And this sort of explains what was happening. It's a measure of the transmission time to and from the airplane and therefore of the plane's distance from the satellite. It does not pinpoint a single location so it's not like GPS, but rather all equidistant locations, a, a roughly circular set of possibilities, right? So the computer knows that the amount of time it took to hit the plane and back, it, it could be sort of in this general circle okay. on the planet. Okay, I'm following you. Yep. Right? Given the range limits of MH370, the near circles can be reduced to actual arcs. So it's not a complete circle. It was, it, you know, with what the plane was capable of doing. Calculations of likely flight paths place the airplane's intersection with its final arc the last time it was recorded and therefore its endpoint, or shortly thereafter in either Kazakhstan, if the airplane turned north or in the Southern Indian Ocean, if it turned south. Technical analysis indicates with near certainty that the airplane most likely turned south. The turn point was a bit north and west of Sumatra, the northernmost uh, island of Indonesia. So it's at that point, the plane either went north or it went south. It has been assumed at some analytical risk that the airplane then flew straight and level for a very long while in the general direction of Antarctica, which lay beyond its fuel range. After six hours, the data indicated a steep and they're saying maybe even completely vertical descent. So sh no straight down. Really? Yeah. As does, much as five. Sorry. Does that ever really happen? No. And planes are, aren't really designed to. I was just going to say that. If, it would glide sort of down, right? Or it could be still steep. But so they think as much as five times greater than a normal descent rate. Within a minute or two of crossing the seventh arc, the plane dived into the ocean, possibly shedding components before impact. Because of the, the the stress and pressure, right, of that yeah, all the velocity, the, which the is G force that would be created. Yeah, exactly. So, judging from the electronic evidence, this was not a controlled attempt at a water landing. The airplane must have fractured instantly into a million pieces. But no one knows where the impact had occurred, much less why. And no one at that time had the slightest bit of physical evidence to confirm that the satellite interpretations were correct. 
Less than a week after the disappearance, the Wall Street Journal published the first report about the satellite transmissions, indicating that the airplane had most likely stayed aloft for hours after going silent. Malaysian officials eventually admitted that the account was true. The Malaysian regime, I actually didn't really realize this, is reportedly very corrupt. Okay, I don't know much about that country at all. It has a democracy, there's a prime minister and things like that, but it, I think there's a lot of paying off. I've always thought of it as a beautiful country and a place I'd actually like to travel to, maybe not after this episode. You know, wonderful food and it's, it's a place where so many different cultures come together, you know. So this, this government is corrupt. Uh, it was also proving itself to be furtive, fearful, and unreliable in its investigation of the flight. Accident investigators dispatched from Europe, Australia, and the United States were shocked by the disarray they encountered. Because the Malaysians withheld what they knew, the initial sea searches were concentrated in the wrong place. They were searching the South China Sea between Malaysia and Vietnam, and they found no floating debris, of course, but the Malaysians knew that it couldn't be there because of what had happened when it crossed back across Malaysian airspace. Well, that's just stupid. Mm -hmm. Had the Malaysians told the truth right away, such debris might have been found and used to identify the airplane's approximate location, and the black boxes might have been recovered. The underwater search for them ultimately centered on a narrow swath of ocean thousands of miles away. But even a narrow swath of the ocean is a giant place. And there are many examples of down planes where the location was known that took time to find. I'm even thinking of some of the stories we've talked about, like Lake Michigan, where, you know, there's things that have sunk in there and they can't find it. And that's, yeah, that's yeah. small, relatively speaking, right? The initial search of surface waters ended in April 2014. After nearly two months of futile efforts and the focus shifted to the ocean depths where it remains today. Although the Malaysians were nominally in charge of the entire investigation, they lacked the means and expertise to mount a subsea search and, re and recovery effort. The Australians, as good international citizens, thank you Australia, took the lead. The areas of the Indian Ocean that the satellite data pointed to, about 1,200 miles southwest of Perth, were so deep and unexplored that the first challenge was to map the undersea area so that sonar buoys could be used safely. Now we pivot a bit here. Can I ask you a question before we continue? Yeah. Um, did the other big countries that are very well equipped not send out help like the US and Canada? They did. I mean, we have a lot of tech here. We have a lot of expertise. We're both countries bordered by water on either side, so. Canada did not send out that type of expertise, but the Americans did. Of course, the Americans. We never... We probably don't have it here. I'm not sure that we, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know that we have that underwater equipment. I'm uh, just talking about the initial search as well. We definitely have the search expertise. Did our military not purchase, like, I'm just wondering why a, a whole bunch of countries didn't all come together and say, hey, we're going to, we're going to help. They did. Because you named like seven, but they were all countries around that area. Yeah. Well, all of the ones directly impacted, but the French ended up getting involved. The Chinese were involved, the, you know, and some countries don't have the, the financial means to get involved. And so okay. they- yeah, I'm sure there's politics at play too, right? Yeah. So in enters a, a new character to our story and an intriguing and fascinating one. His name is Blaine Gibson. He's a self-described adventurer, explorer, and truth seeker. And he went on high alert when news of MH370's disappearance came to light. Uh, Blaine is an interesting character. He, um, he comes from money and he's an older man, but he's spent his life traveling the world. Cool. Yeah. Not, you know, not traveling in the lap of luxury, but just he's, he's neat because he seems to want to connect with the local people, you know, 
he's not going to the Hiltons and eating McDonald's. I like him. Uh, Blaine has made it his mission, in fact, to visit every country in the world and has dabbled in some famous mysteries. He's investigated the end of the Mayan civilization, the Tunguska explosion, which I one of us needs to do at some point in eastern Siberia, and the location of the Ark of the Covenant in the mountains of Ethiopia. Uh, Blaine followed the frustration at first from a distance, but then he decided that he wanted to jump in on the search and get involved. He actually moved to Laos and joined online discussion groups dedicated to the loss of MH370. Gibson began to wonder whether, for all the strenuous underwater searching, debris from the airplane might someday simply wash up on a beach somewhere. Mm -hmm. He then made it his mission to scour the coast along the Indian Ocean, pinpointing areas where currents would often wash debris ashore. He would become MH370's private beachcomber. And for those people who aren't Canadian, we had a very famous show when we were <laughs> younger called The Beachcombers. It was on CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Company. Iconic. And I hated it because it would be like when I was a kid, there was only a few channels and we'd go to my grandmother's on Sunday and we'd be forced to watch the beachcombers on TV. Oh, I know. I know. There was that angry man named Relic who would steal things from the beach. And it was just, it was annoying. Yeah. It was an annoying show. It reminds me of when I would watch the CBC as well when I was young and there were always programs in the way of the programs I wanted to watch. So I would have to endure <laughs> the worst, the worst though, and everybody remembers this, in order to get to the uh, wonderful world of Disney on Sunday, you would have to endure for an hour a show called Hymn Sing. I don't remember that at all. It was like six people and they would sing hymns. Like him sing. I'm, it's not him like him and her. It's him like a religious song. Him sing. It was horrible. Oh. And that was on, I don't know who, what genius of programming put this on, but it was on just before The Wonderful World of Disney. Which was glorious. That was such a great broadcast, right? But you know what was great about that show? That show was kind of like the official end of the weekend when you were a kid. In a happy way. It, yeah, it was the final installment of the magic that was the weekend. Then you'd, yeah. you know, you'd go to bed and, and your week would begin again. But that was the, yeah, it Do was the capper. Friday night movies? Like it would be like a, a, it was like, I think it was called Friday night movies. And it would have like a, you know, a theatrical film. No. Uh, I, it, it would play late at night and it was always a big deal. Don't remember that. It's probably all the drugs you did. What? That's a <sighs> lovely thing to say. Now the RCMP are going to show up at my house. Well, good. All the drugs I did. Jesus. How many quaaludes are you on right now? You can't even get quaaludes anymore. They Well, because you've taken them all. gone. I'm also not like 78. Quaaludes is like <laughs> generations before me. That's like the Judy Garland generation. Good God, quaaludes. I love the uh, word. You live in a virtual opium den. I do. There's, there's people passed out all over the room right now. Jerry, get up. <laughs> you say Gary? Jerry. Oh, Jerry. All right, let's get back to this story. Uh, at first, uh, Blaine found some debris, but nothing that came from an airplane. And he continued to scour the coasts along the Indian Ocean. So he was just beach. He was just walking the beaches looking for stuff. Yeah, and he, he would speak to experts. So he was actually, this guy's not like a, a, a crazy person. Like he was actually talking to local people and, and different oceanographers to find out how the tides worked and where, because there are points where things just tend to wash up. I was going to say though then, so not related to the plane, he must have found some cool shit. Oh, he did. Oh, yeah. Like shoes and stuff. Oh, tons of stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to know, wouldn't you? He talked about it. He, he did find those exact things, purses and odd things, you know. <laughs> a foot? Oh, no, that's Canada. Uh, no, that's Canada. We should do that. 
We should do the mystery of the feet washing up yeah, on we shore. Should. I don't we know should. if people around the world, if our visitors around the world know that Canada has this mysterious thing where these severed feet show up on, on the shore of, of water. Well, near Vancouver. Near Vancouver, yeah. yeah, in Western Canada. They're just severed feet. Mm-hmm. Anyway. With their shoes on. Like it's a set, cleanly severed foot with a, with a sneaker usually still on it. Yeah. It's really and the weird. weirdest part is they keep saying that it's not suspicious. <laughs> but they don't tell you whose food it was or how or why. It's not, It's odd. All right. So on July 29th, 2015, about 16 months after the airplane went missing, a municipal beach cleanup crew on the French island of Réunion. I'm going to say Réunion. Réunion. It's Réunion. 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 Beautiful. Have you been there? No, but my boss has. Her sister I lives there. I was looking there. at pictures. It's ridiculous. It's beautiful. Like waterfalls. Yeah, very yeah. beautiful place. Réunion. Réunion. Like meeting. Uh, and so it's in the middle of the Indian Ocean. This uh, crew came upon a torn piece of airfoil about six feet long that seemed to have just washed ashore. A team of gendarmes showed up and took the piece away, which a gendarme are the French police. It was quickly determined to be a part of a Boeing 777, a control surface called a flaperon, that, or flaperon, that is attached, I'm into the French now, uh, that is attached to the trailing edge of the wings. Subsequent examination of serial numbers showed that it had, in fact, come from MH370. Here was the necessary physical evidence that the flight had ended violently in the Indian Ocean, albeit somewhere still unknown, and thousands of miles to the east of Réunion. Gibson, encouraged by this find, doubled down on his efforts. Securing the help of experts from Australia, he wanted to know the most likely locations for floating debris to come ashore. The answer was the northeast coast of Madagascar and, to a lesser degree, the coast of Mozambique. And I love this. Gibson opted for Mozambique because he had not been there before. He could bag it as his 177th country. He got there in February 2016. As he recalls, he asked for advice from local fishermen and was told of a sandbank called Paluma, that lay beyond a reef where fishermen could go to collect nets and buoys that washed in from the Indian Ocean. They found all sorts of junk, mostly plastic. However, they also found a gray triangular scrap about two feet across. It had a honeycomb structure and the stenciled words of no step on one surface. The scrap from a horizontal stabilizer panel was determined to almost certainly be from MH370. Gibson flew to the capital, Maputo, and handed the debris to the Australian consul. In June 2016, Gibson turned his attention to the remote northeastern shores of Madagascar. This turned out to be the mother load. Gibson says he found three pieces on the first day, and another two a few days later. The following week, on a beach eight miles away, three more pieces were delivered to him. And so it has gone ever since. Word has gotten around that he will pay for MH370 debris, he says he once paid so much for a piece, $40, <laughs> and I love this, that an entire village went on a day-long bender, which I guess that means the rum is, is cheap there. Yeah, seriously, $40. Wow. Yeah. A lot of debris washed up that had nothing to do with the airplane, of course, as we just sort of talked about. But of the several dozen pieces that have been identified to date as certain or likely or suspected to have come from MH370, Gibson has been responsible for the discovery of roughly a third of it. This lone guy, and he's not really making much money. He's actually losing money searching for this stuff, which is really neat. Yeah, it's impressive. The fact remains that after seven years, no one has yet been able to work backwards from where the debris has washed ashore and trace it to some point of origin in the southern Indian Ocean. 
In his insistence on maintaining an open mind, Gibson still holds out the hope of finding new debris that will explain the disappearance. Charred wiring indicating a fire, for instance, or shrapnel peppered evidence of a missile strike. What Gibson's discovery of so many bits of debris has confirmed is that the signals analysis was correct. The airplane flew for six hours until the flight came suddenly to an end. There was no effort by someone at the controls to bring the airplane down gently. It shattered. There is still a chance, Gibson thinks, of finding the equivalent of a message in a bottle, a a note of desperation scribbled by someone in his or her last moments on the doomed airplane. On the beaches, Gibson has found a few backpacks and a large number of purses, all of which have been empty, and there's no way of knowing for sure if they're coming from MH370. Of course. The closest he has come to finding such a note, he says, was a message written in Malay on the underside of a baseball cap. Translated, it read, To whom it may concern, my dear friend, meet me at the guest house later. Why would you write that in a hat? Weird. It sounds kind of kinky. Maybe. I would love to get a hat that said that. Wouldn't you love to get a hat that said that? Would you go? Yeah, of course. So would I. I'm sleazy that way. So the official investigations eventually drew to a close. There were three actual official investigations. Uh, The first was the largest and most rigorous and most expensive. The uh, technically advanced Australian underwater search effort, which was focused on locating the main debris in order to retrieve the airplane's flight data and cockpit voice recorders. It involved an immense amount of calculations, technical considerations, and forensic analysis of the debris discovered. It required heavy maritime operations in some of the world's roughest seas. Nonetheless, after more than three years, and get this, Riley, at about $160 million, the Australian investigation closed without success. Wow. It was picked up in 2018 by an American company called Ocean Infinity under contract with the Malaysian government on a no-find, no-fee basis. This search used advanced underwater surveillance vehicles and covered a new section of the 7th Arc, a section deemed most likely by the independent group to bring results. After a few months, it too ended in failure. Oh no. The second official investigation belonged to the Malaysian police and amounted to the background checks of everyone on the airplane as well as some of their friends. It is hard to know the true extent of the police discoveries because the report that resulted from the investigation stopped short of full disclosure. The report was stamped secret and withheld even from other Malaysian investigators. But after it was leaked by someone on the inside, its inadequacies became clear. Mm-hmm. Officials had reason for caution. They had careers to protect and maybe their lives. It is obvious that decisions were made to not pursue certain avenues that might have reflected poorly on Malaysian airlines or the government. Oh, okay. And this is, again, this is a, a national airline. Yeah, of course. point of pride, right? So maybe, maybe that's why. The third official investigation was the accident inquiry intended not to uh, adjudicate liability, but to find probable cause and to be conducted according to the highest global standards by an international team. I have a friend uh, who's a retired flight uh, invest, like like crash investigations. Yeah, yeah. He was actually Canada's lead guy and sometimes listens to the show. And I know he's talked about some of the different investigations that he's been on, how much work goes into it. And there is a really high standard that is upheld and a lot of often cooperation between countries to get to the bottom of what has happened. Uh, so this group was led by a working group assembled by the Malaysian government and was a mess from its inception. Oh no. The police and military disdained it. Government ministers saw it as a risk and didn't want to be involved. And foreign specialists who were sent to assist 
began retreating almost as soon as they arrived. A close observer of the MH370 process said, and I quote, It became clear that the primary objective of the Malaysians was to make the subject just go away. In the end, the, the Malaysian report was seen as hardly more than a whitewash, whose only real contribution was a frank description of the air traffic control failures, presumably because half of them could be blamed on the Vietnamese, and because the Malaysian controllers constituted the weakest local target politically. The report was released in July 2018, more than four years after the event, which is not abnormal, right. but it stated that the investigative team was unable to determine the cause of the airplane's disappearance. So again, the idea that a sophisticated machine with its modern instruments, as you mentioned, and redundant communications could simply vanish seemed beyond the realm of possibility. Let's get into the theories. Oh, I can't wait to hear these because I'm sure I know like five of them. So the, the first, and obviously this is where you would go with this, is that it was a hijacking. Yeah, that's my first one. And this possibility has been brought up by a lot of reputable sources. You'll find, you know, ABC News did a piece on it, Los Angeles Times. This is where a lot of the experts that they hired, you know, said this looks so much like a hijacking. Speculation is mounted about uh, the possibility that hijackers took the plane to a remote island, although no group has claimed responsibility. Unofficial researchers have identified more than 600 possible runways at which the plane was capable of landing. French and not, and these aren't crazy people. These are people that are experts in some cases, but they weren't involved in the official investigation. So yeah. French air traffic specialist Jean-Marc Guerreau, Michel Delarche, and Jean-Luc Marchand launched a website with their hypothesis concerning a possible hijacking with a subsequent location of the aircraft following an emergency ditching due to fuel exhaustion estimated in the Indian Ocean near Christmas Island. However, the final report from the Australian Transport Safety Bureau released in 2017 examined the possibility of controlled glide ditching and found it very unlikely. So was this a hijacking? A hijacking is the third party solution favored in the official report. Okay. It is the least painful explanation for anyone in authority that night. But it has immense problems. The main one is that the cockpit door was fortified, electrically bolted, and surveilled by video feed that the pilots could see. Also, less than two minutes passed between Zahari's casual goodnight to the Kuala Lumpur controller and the start of the diversion with the attendant loss of the transponder signal. How would hijackers have known to make their move precisely during the handoff to Vietnamese air traffic control and then gained access so quickly and smoothly that neither of the pilots had a chance to transmit a distress signal. I, I learned that even on the, the, the joystick there that they use, there's like a button right there at their fingers. That if they press that button, it sends a, a distress signal. Oh, so it's it's like a bank where the tellers have It's a like button. a bank. There's a whole bunch of different places. And, and even the um, flight attendants have access to these secret things that they press uh, an alarm is signaled. Okay. None of that ever happened. It is possible, of course, that the hijackers were known to the pilots, that they were invited into the cockpit, but even that does not explain the lack of a radio transmission, particularly during the hand-flown turn away from Beijing. Furthermore, every one of the passengers and cabin crew members has been investigated and cleared of suspicion by teams of Malaysian, Chinese investigators, and the FBI. Okay. And they all three have said no one on there was was a suspect. So they scoured the passenger list and yeah. 
and did deep searches. The quality of that police work is open to question, of course, because the Malaysians were involved. But it was so thorough that they even discovered that two people on the plane were not who they said they were. They were two, they were Iranian and they were f- trying to flee to Germany. Oh, They were looking for political asylum. They were not considered potential terrorists. Okay. Now, it is possible that stowaways, so someone uh, by definition uh, is unrecorded on the airplane's manifest, had hidden in the equipment bag. I was going to ask you that because it could have been somebody there they don't know about. And absolutely, I mean, hard to do to sneak onto a plane. But I guess if there was, it was an inside job, perhaps it, it could happen. Pay off the right people, right? Right. If so, they would have had access to two circuit breakers that, if pulled, would have unbolted the cockpit door. But that scenario has problems too. The bolts click loudly when they open. And that would have would have been very familiar to the pilots and would have let them know that something was wrong with their door. On top of that, they would have had to go through a hatch through the bottom of the airplane make their way into the cabin, and then try to get through the door. The amount of time that that would have taken makes it very unlikely that they would have been able to have gained entry into the cockpit without an alarm, again, going off. And see, I can sort of visualize all of this now thanks to snakes on a plane. Or... Or that Air Force One, was that Harrison Ford and that? Or you, you decide, like, you realize how many parts of the plane you don't realize... The best one for that is that weird Jodie Foster movie. Is it Jodie Foster where she wakes up, she's napping in something and her kid's gone on the plane? Yeah, what was that one called? I don't remember. And it was Cillian Murphy. He's creepy just as a person. Killian? Cillian? Killian. Killian? Yeah. He's creepy. If that's the case, if it's hijacking, what would be its purpose? Money? Politics? Publicity, an act of war, a terrorist attack, the intricate seven-hour profile of MH370's deviation into oblivion fits none of these scenarios. And no one has claimed responsibility for the act. You know, doing these types of acts of terrorism anonymously is not really consistent with how that usually goes, right? Of course. So another theory is that the plane uh, was electronically hijacked. Electronic hijacking uses systems and programming already factory installed within the plane's flight management system. Notable proponents of this theory include former Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad. In 2014, he said, Clearly Boeing and certain agencies have the capacity to take over uninterruptible control of commercial airliners, of which MH370 777 is one. In this statement, he was referring to offboard hijackers with access to MH370's flight management system via something called the uninterruptible autopilot. This was something that was patented in 2003 uh, in response to what happened in 9-11. So it essentially allows remotely people to take control over a plane. But who would have had the means and the motive to down the plane and to what end? Again, why? Why are you doing that? You know? So another interesting theory is called the spoofed satellite data. Technology writer Jeff Wise has developed a theory in which the aircraft's controls were taken over by hijackers from the electronics and equipment bay, accessible through a hatch, so that same bay that we were talking about where they might have opened the door, and it's accessible through a hatch in the first-class cabin floor. Wise theorizes that the Inmarsat satellite pings were a deliberately laid false trail created by feeding the plane's satellite communication system false data, which in turn caused the system to make false frequency corrections. These would, when later scrutinized, lead investigators to conclude the plane was headed south when, according to Wise's theory, 
it did actually fly north and possibly landed at Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. He calls this the spoof scenario, and he proposes that the Russians might have stolen the airplane to create a distraction from the annexation of Crimea, which at that time was underway. An obvious weak spot in his argument is the need to explain how, if the airplane was flown to Kazakhstan, all that wreckage ended up in the Indian Ocean. Right. Why is his answer? It was planted. Oh, okay. Which is out there, but not really. Yeah, it's not outrageous. Let's say they did land the plane somewhere, and then they could even dismantle it and just start discarding. It wouldn't be that hard to do. And great red herring. Mm-hmm. Another theory is out there that North Korea was involved, that the North Koreans might have uh, uh, shot the plane down. But that's a, a harder stretch, and especially now that we know where it ended up, doesn't, or roughly where it ended up, doesn't make a lot of sense. There is also, though, connected to North Korea, a story that there may have been nuclear weapons or or nuclear weapon material or know-how on that plane, and the Americans shot it down to prevent it from eventually ending up in the North Koreans' hands. Hmm. Again, not, not verifiable. That's very convoluted. Yes. Here's an interesting one. A variety of social media posts and email chain letters claim that a patent, numbers 867-1381, was approved days after the disappearance of MH370, and the right to the patent was split five ways. 20% to Freescale Semiconductor, the name of the company, and 20% to each to four employees, all of whom were passengers on the plane and helped create this, this patent. The urban myth website Snopes.com suggests that there is no evidence that the four inventors listed on the patent application were on the aircraft passenger list, nor that they were entitled to a 20% share of the patent. And it says it is unlikely that their share would revert to free scale on their death as presented in the email. However, retired Delta Airlines captain Field McConnell, I love that name, Field McConnell. Why do pilots often have cool names? It's a very military. Well, a lot of pilots are ex-military too, right? So it's a very military yeah. name, Field McConnell. I want to. I'm going to develop that character, Field McConnell. You'd be great. You'd be a great Field. My McConnell. name is Field McConnell. He claimed that the aircraft was seized. He has a mustache. I want to talk more about this. I bet he has oh. a mustache. But he's big with bits of mustard in it. He looks like that guy who was in um, Whiplash. J, uh, like the the teacher. J C. He was also J Jonah Jamins. J C. Watts, the famous congressman and CFL football player. So, however, retired Delta Airlines captain Field McConnell claimed that the aircraft was seized to obtain stealth knowledge of classified patents from 22 Chinese employees of U.S.-based Freescale. McConnell also claimed that the company has developed a classified technology that uses paint and electronics to enable traditional aircraft to be overhauled into stealthy jets. Now, what I think is the coolest one. Conspiracy theorists have suggested that MH370 was either captured by the United States and then flown to a U.S. military base on the atoll of Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean, or that the plane landed at the base directly after being instructed to travel there. The latter theory was raised at a White House daily briefing on the 18th of March, whereupon Press Secretary Jay Carney responded, I'll rule that one out. Underpinning the Diego Garcia theory were several elements, one of which was the co-pilot's mobile phone contact and the plane's westward turn, both of which were consistent with a flight path toward the island. In that vein, it was reported by the Daily Mirror, without giving a concrete source, that the captain had trained in landing on an Indian Ocean island with a short runway using his flight simulator at his home. 
Several mass media sources reported that the captain had trained using his simulator to land on five runways at least 1,000 meters long in the Indian Ocean region, namely Diego Garcia and Malay International Airport and other airstrips in India and Sri Lanka. These allegations were disputed by the FBI, which reported that after analyzing the impound of flight simulator, it had found nothing suspicious whatsoever and said that the Mir's reports about the simulator's contents were unsubstantiated and unsourced. Giving a new twist to the MH370 missing story, a former French airline boss who owned an airline has claimed the Malaysia Airlines flight was shot down by the U.S. military near their base on Diego Garcia. In an article published on the 18th of March 2014, journalist Farah Ahmed and Ahmed Naif of the Maldivian newspaper Haveru wrote, and this is so interesting, several residents of Kudu Huvaudu told Haveru on Tuesday that they saw a low-flying jumbo jet at around 6.15 on March 8th. The exact time it would have been in that area. They said that it was a white aircraft with red stripes across it, which is what the Malaysia Airlines flights typically look like. Eyewitnesses from the Kudu Huvaudu concurred that the jet was traveling north to southeast towards the southern tip of the Maldives. They also noted the incredibly loud noise that the flight made when it flew over the island. This is a quote. I've never seen a jet flying so low over our island before. We've seen seaplanes, but I'm sure that this was not one of those. I can even make out the doors on the plane clearly. It's not just me either. Several other residents have reported seeing the exact same thing. Some people got out of their houses to see what was causing the tremendous noise too. The discovery of the debris on Reunion Island, east of Madagascar, quickly led to renewed internet speculation that the plane had been shot down near Diego Garcia, which is 1,475 miles away from Reunion, out of fears of a terrorist attack. Many people, including some of those who believed the plane had landed safely on Diego Garcia or elsewhere, quickly dismissed the debris again as a fake. Now, another fun theory, <laughs> and I won't dive into this one because it's pretty ridiculous. There's a theory that the plane traveled into a black hole or another dimension and just disappeared. Okay. It, this gained some traction when Don Lemon on CNN actually brought it up on one of his shows, asking whether that was preposterous, whether that you know could possibly be the reason. That has been shot down readily by physicists right okay black holes don't just appear and disappear for stars well, if a black hole appeared wouldn't it swallow up everything it's hugely it doesn't a black hole have huge gravity right yes so there'd be a lot more than just a plane sucked in there i don't think it's possible for a black hole to appear well i shouldn't say that i don't think a, a black hole the size of an airplane just appears black holes come from collapsed stars yes and we don't have, you know, well, we have some collapsed stars like David Hasselhoff, mm. right? Yeah. I mean, come on. Dear God. You followed up Knight Rider with Baywatch? Get over yourself. Do you know Do you know how much money he made on Baywatch though? It's obscene. I'm going to guess hundreds of dollars. Obscene. And then he jumped right into America's Got Talent. Does it though? <laughs> Get the, here's another one. You're going to like this one, Riley. We're in, we're coming down the home stretch here. All right. Buckle up. Buddy, holding on. A poll posted on CNN's website reported that 9% of respondents thought it was was either very or somewhat likely that the plane was, finish my sentence, that the plane was taken by aliens. Yes, Riley, or time travelers or, you know, beings from another dimension. Yes. In March 2018, around the fourth anniversary of Flight 370's disappearance, this is where, and this is where it gained some traction. This is 9%. 9%. 
Wow. Uh, an individual received strange voicemails and texts with coordinates of a location in Indonesia somewhat close to where Flight 370 vanished. The voicemails in Morse code alluded to an alien abduction. This generated significant media attention as the man who received the text and voicemails also claimed that someone had shown up and taken pictures of his house. The calls were placed using a VoIP service or VOIP. I think you say VoIP, right? Yeah, voice over internet protocol. And were traced to two hotels in Port Blair uh, in the area, though the identity of the caller remains uncertain. Investigators dismissed the phone calls as most likely being a prank or a hoax. And someone actually was eventually arrested for being behind it, but there's... You know, like, but that's so annoying. Did he read Morse code? Like, did he understand Morse code? Could you imagine getting a voicemail or a text of Morse code and you didn't know it? Imagine how long and arduous it would be to decode that. Ugh. Well, you'd have to go to someone who, who does know it. Okay. So here's the big one. It doesn't, it still doesn't answer everything, but a lot of people will argue that this, this is, this is it. The pilots were involved. Mm-hmm. It's the, the most widely accepted theory, uh, and it, it goes, you know, control was seized from within the cockpit and that it happened in that 20-minute period from 1.01 a.m. when the airplane leveled at 35,000 feet to 1.21 a.m. when it disappeared from secondary radar. By the time the airplane dropped from the view of secondary transponder-enhanced radar, it is likely, given the implausibility of two pilots acting in concert, that one of them was incapacitated or dead or been locked out of the cockpit. Primary radar records, both military and civilian, later indicated that whoever was flying MH370 must have switched off the autopilot because the turn the airplane then made to the southwest when it doubled back mm-hmm. was so tight that it had to have been flown by hand. It wasn't a graceful, long-arced turn. This was a really tight and would have stretched the plane's uh, capabilities. Circumstances suggest that whoever was at the controls deliberately depressurized the airplane. Wow. At about the same, yeah, at about the same time, much, if not all, the electrical system was deliberately shut down. Again, this is a theory, right? The reasons for that shutdown are not known, but one of its effects was to temporarily sever the satellite link. An electrical engineer named Mike Exner has studied the radar data extensively. He believes that during the turn, their airplane actually climbed up to 40,000 feet, which was close to its limit and would have produced notable Gs on everyone on board, thus rendering them incapable of putting up a fight in the few moments they had to win back the plane. Exner believes the reason for the climb was to accelerate the effects of depressurizing the airplane, causing the rapid incapacitation and death of everyone in the cabin. Wow. An intentional depressurization would have been an obvious way and probably the only way to subdue a potentially unruly cabin in an airplane that was going to remain in flight for hours to come. And, you know, I instantly thought, well, what about the masks? Those masks drop. Yeah, the oxygen. Automatically yeah. drop, right? When when that happens. But apparently those things aren't uh, meant for long-term use. They, they have about 15 minutes of air and they're really meant for below 13,000 feet. Okay. So at 40,000 feet, they would have been of no value to anyone putting them on in the cabin. So the cabin occupants would have become incapacitated within a couple of minutes, lost consciousness, and gently died without any choking or gasping for air. It would have actually been a peaceful way to go. The scene would have been dimly lit by the emergency lights with the dead belted into their seats, their faces 
nestled in the worthless oxygen masks dangling on tubes from the ceiling. The cockpit, by, tr- by contrast, was equipped with four pressurized oxygen masks linked to hours of supply. Whoever depressurized the airplane would have simply had to slap one on. The airplane was moving fast. On primary radar, it appeared as an unidentified blip approaching the island of Penang at nearly 600 miles an hour. And here is another really weird twist, Riley. Okay. So the mainland nearby is home to Butterworth Air Base, which where a squadron of Malaysian F-18 interceptors is stationed. Is that run by Mrs. Butterworth? It is. It's where the syrup comes from. from table syrup fame. Yeah. I'm Mrs. Butterworth. She didn't talk like that. She was like, oh, I'm Mrs. Butterworth. I'm Mrs. Butterworth. No, she's not a troll under a bridge. Oh, I, would you like an F-15 with your pancakes? Yeah! <laughs> Merry Christmas! Oh, my fucking God. Just continue. Hey, you brought up Butterworth. I loved Mrs. Butterworth when I was a kid because the commercial was neat because her arms moved. Suddenly her arms would come free and they were made of glass. I got bit by a bottle of Mrs. Butterworth when I was eight. You can't get it in Canada, so you're lying. I was at Disney World. <laughs> you fool. Why do I bother? So... So this plane is is doubling back, approaching uh, the island of Penang, where Butterworth Air Base is, and a squadron of Malaysian F-18 interceptors are stationed along with an air defense radar. According to a former official, before the accident report was released, Malaysian Air Force officers demanded to review and edit it. In a section called Malaysian Military Radar, the report provides a timeline, suggesting that the air defense radar had been actively monitored that the military was well aware of the identity of the aircraft and that it purposefully did not pursue to intercept the aircraft since it was, in quotes, friendly and did not pose any threat to national airspace security, integrity, and sovereignty, end quote. The question, of course, is why? If the military knew the airplane had turned around and was flying west, completely against its original flight path, It then allowed the search to continue for days in the wrong body of water to the east. And why would they not have been at the very least curious as to the change in the plane's flight plan? Why not send an F-18 to see what was going on? Absolutely. Why did they assume that, oh no, this thing that is flying now back over our, through our airspace, it's not a threat to us. That's ridiculous. Yeah, that's, that doesn't make any sense. So this leaves us with a different sort of event that one of the pilots was the hijacker. Reasonable people may resist the idea that a pilot would murder hundreds of innocent passengers as the collateral price of killing himself, but this has happened before. In the case of MH370, it is difficult to see the co-pilot as the perpetrator. He was young and optimistic and reportedly planning to get married. He had no history of any sort of trouble, dissent, or doubts. It is the captain, Zahari, who raises concern for some. In the official reports, he is reported He is portrayed as someone beyond reproach, a good pilot and placid family man who liked to play with a flight simulator. This is the image promoted by Zahari's family, but it is contradicted by multiple indications of trouble that some argue has been brushed over. The Malaysian police report held back on divulging what was known about Zahari. The official account paints him as a skilled and experienced pilot with no known behavioral or mental health issues. According to some... However, Zahari was often lonely and expressed feeling sadness. His wife had moved out and was living in the family's second home. By his own admission to friends, he spent a lot of time 
pacing empty rooms, waiting for the days between flights to go by. Zahari seems to have become somewhat disconnected from his earlier, well-established life. He was in touch with his children, but they were grown and gone. There is a strong suspicion among investigators in the aviation and intelligence communities that he was clinically depressed. But I need to stress that just because he was depressed, if he was depressed, that's not necessarily evidence that you're about to commit mass murder. Absolutely. Absolutely. I find that a stretch. As mentioned earlier, forensic examinations of Zahari's simulator by the FBI revealed that he did experiment with a flight profile roughly matching that of MH370, a flight north around Indonesia followed by a long run to the south, ending in fuel exhaustion over the Indian Ocean. Okay. Yeah. Malaysian investigators dismissed this flight profile as merely one of several hundred that the simulator had recorded. But of all the profiles extracted from the simulator, the one that matched MH370's path was the only one that Zahari did not run as a continuous flight. In other words, taking off on the simulator and letting the flight play out hour after hour until it reached the destination airport. Instead, he advanced the flight manually in multiple stages, repeatedly jumping the flight forward and subtracting the fuel as necessary until it was gone. Given that there was nothing technical that Zahari could have learned by rehearsing the act on the game, some suspect that the purpose of the simulator flight might have been to leave a breadcrumb trail to say goodbye. But why leave such a cryptic goodbye note? Why not just leave a note? Does the absence of all of this from the official report, Zahari's travails, the peculiar nature of the flight profile on the simulator, not to mention the technical inadequacies of the report itself, constitute a cover-up? I don't know. I really don't. And this is strange. I mean, it's certainly worthy of suspicion, right? I guess. I find it a bit of a stretch. Well, and then other people claim, who's to say that that wasn't planted on his simulator? Yeah. It just seems too perfect, it right? Seems a, yeah, it's, I'm, not, I'm not digging this one. Surprisingly, Blaine Gibson, our beachcomber, became the target of unknown forces as well. As he recalls, the threats and accusations emerged as soon as as he found his first piece, the one labeled No Step, and they multiplied afterward, particularly as the beaches of Madagascar began to bear fruit. Mm -hmm. Gibson was accused of exploiting the families and of being a fraud, a publicity hound, a drug addict, a Russian agent, an American agent, and at the very least, a dupe. He began receiving death threats, messages on social media and phone calls to friends predicting his demise. One message said that he either he would stop looking for debris or he would leave Madagascar in a coffin. Another warned that he would die of polonium poisoning, which, of course, is the favorite po uh, form of poisoning of uh, Russian assassins. Oh, dear, yeah. In 2017, Gibson arranged a formal mechanism for the transfer of debris. He would turn over any new fine to authorities in Madagascar, who, in turn, would hand it to Malaysia's honorary consul, who would pack it up and ship it to Kuala Lumpur for examination and storage. On August 24th of that year, the honorary consul was gunned down in his car by an assassin who escaped on a motorcycle and has never been found. By now, Blaine largely avoids disclosing his location or travel plans and for similar reasons avoids using email and rarely, rarely speaks over the telephone. He frequently swaps out his SIM cards. He believes he is sometimes followed and photographed. It is hard to explain the idea that the debris is worth killing for. For now, the official investigations have petered out. The Australians have done what they could. The Chinese want to move on and are censoring any news that might inflame the passions of the families. 
The French are off in France, rehashing the satellite data. The Malaysians just wish the whole subject would go away. If the wreckage is ever found, it will hopefully help answer some of our questions. But the reality is, we may never know what really happened and why to Flight 370. Oh, my God. I think I have to listen to all of this again. That was a lot of data. That was more data than you usually throw my way. I've never done anything like this It was before. so technical, and there were so many names and numbers and countries and blah, 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 blah. My mind's a little bit muddled. There's a few points that I, I'd like to just quickly double back with you and just talk with you about. I find it weird. If you're going to commit suicide, I don't, I, I don't find it a stretch to think that a suicidal person is not of right mind and could hurt others. I get that. But why fly for six hours, right? Like why not crash the plane right away? That theory holds no water for me. So is it maybe because he wanted to fly for six hours, like have these final six hours to just fly? Then rent a, then rent a uh, small aircraft, rent a Piper and go and, you know, take care of yourself that way. Well, I mean, again, there's documented cases of commercial airline pilots crashing their planes and killing everyone on board. It just doesn't make sense to me to have done all the weird things that he did. No, it doesn't make any sense to me. I would not ascribe to that theory at all. Like, why not just veer east and go to the Pacific? You know, why this like hard turn risking the the armed forces of your country or Indonesia or someone uh, catching you? But maybe that was the point, too. Maybe he wanted to be caught. Maybe he thought he would be shot down and he wasn't. And so he just rode his plane off to oblivion. But on the same token, if the plane didn't crash, if it did go north, why? I don't find the explanations super plausible the other way. I think what you told me about him too, about his state, I don't think his state was extreme enough to warrant that. It's so he had a marriage that went bad. He was alone. He was depressed. He, you know, he was probably you know, on in years and his life hadn't gone the direction he had expected it to go. You said his kids had moved out, but that's not an unusual thing. And it's not unusual to be a bit down because you don't know what the rest of your life is going to look like. But for you to jump from that all the way to like mass murder. To a clean record. Like he was a, a very high ranking and extremely well-respected pilot. So to jump from that mental state to mass murder to me is a journey that doesn't make any sense to me. It, it sounds improbable. The only thing I could see, if it's not that, is that there was someone on board or something on board that someone, a body, a powerful body wanted. They, they destroyed the aircraft. Uh, and they co they've covered that up, mm -hmm. or they landed the aircraft, whether it was in Kazakhstan or if it was at this Diego Garcia base that the Americans own. Uh, there could have been, you know, a mind on that plane that no one. It's kind of like those spy thriller movies where no one, either side, is not going to reveal what actually took place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the Chinese maybe, for example, maybe there was. We know there were Chinese nationals on that plane. Perhaps the Americans wanted one of those people. The arms race is huge right now between those two countries, right? So who knows? That's speculation, of course, but I just find this thing so odd. And this is a bit more diet love pass-ish in that I think the explanations are less likely supernatural, right? Oh, absolutely. And more absolutely government intrigue and, and conspiracy based. It could also be some phenomena we're not aware of. Yeah. I mean, there, there's even speculation. I mean, there's speculation that there was a fire on board. 
but there's no evidence of that. Why would then it fly for six hours with, again, with no distress uh, signal? There's even a theory out there that a meteorite could have hit it. And that would be so, so unlucky. Yeah. But again, why fly for six hours? Yeah, of course. I don't know enough about aircraft and sort of the science of it to really speculate with any certainty. I just, I don't know. I know it's always been, it's a mystery that plagues the world to this day, right? What happened? There's just nothing there. That's so right. I want to ask you a question. So the guy, the beachcomber is a hundred percent certain that some of the debris he found belonged to the plane. There's no doubt about it. He's not the one saying it. Experts are saying it because they're tracing serial on some of these pieces. There are serial numbers and they're tracing it back to the to MH370. So they know that it crashed in the water then? Yes, unless you, you know, are, are party to the theory that it was planted there. Right. Okay. Okay. Again, that wouldn't be hard to do, to plant that evidence. I don't know, Dan. Damn it. I thought Does you Does anyone know Dan? No one knows me. Mm, you're a mystery. I am. Much like MH370. You're a figure in the rain with an umbrella and a coat. Oh, that's cool. It is cool. I like that. I'm going to get that tattooed on my back. That was, like I said, I almost have to listen to that again. Well, I hope Maybe we just run that. We'll drive up our Why ratings. don't we just run that as our episode for the next month, every week? <laughs> <laughs> again, again, again. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it is. I, I honestly, at one point uh, near the beginning of this, I actually thought I would drop it because it seemed way too technical. And I again, I, I probably could have done... I'm not kidding. I probably could have done three hours on this. Well, I'm sure there's so much out there and so much speculation. There's tons of theories that I didn't even bother going down uh, and discussing. Uh, there's so much more. Like I stripped this thing of most of the technical stuff. And if you are interested in learning and reading, there's some really great articles. There's a, uh, well, even Wikipedia on this one is actually like rich with a lot of different things. And that's a great place to sort of jump off and start doing some reading. Is there Reddit? Oh, there's tons of, tons on Reddit. There's uh, the Atlantic had a great article on it. Uh, they, that article though, and, and some of the stuff that I pulled from it, he, he really feels that it was the, the pilot that was behind it. And I'm not sure I completely buy his thesis on that. So, but good article, well-written and lengthy. Yeah. So there we go. That's the show. Well, I don't want to babble on too much longer because we're way over an hour. We usually wrap under an hour, but this one, yeah. this one took some time. Let's land the plane. Well, thank you for that, Dan. That was a, it's a story I've always wondered about because it, again, it's the idea of it just vanishing such a, and we assume that technology has made that um, irrelevant. That's no longer the case, that things just don't disappear. You know, that's what I always assumed. I assume that planes just cannot vanish. So when it did, I remember going, say what? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and by the way, roughly around that same time, another Malaysian, I don't know if you remember this, another Malaysian airplane was shot down. I remember that. Yeah. In the Ukraine, right? Which was weird. Yeah, I do absolutely really remember weird. that. And it, this is roughly, it was roughly around the same time. Are they connected? Maybe. Shall you send us home now, Dan? Send us home. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we really appreciate your continued support as we uh, we continue to produce these little shows for you. Uh, thank you so much. If you enjoy listening to The Weird, please feel free to share the word of The Weird with your friends, family, co-workers. If there is a bird, a parrot, perhaps, that visits your home, uh, tell the parrot and, uh, and then it will squawk for infinity because those things live a long time. Uh, about the weird. I love the idea, the image of a parrot visiting your home, like the doorbell rings and you go and open the door and there's a parrot with her purse. 
And yes. she just comes in and she's just With her purse. <laughs> she's just there for a little visit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that idea and that image. Uh, yeah. So please folks, uh, that's all we ask. Uh, we don't charge anything for any of our shows. Um, although I think eventually we're going to probably end up charging what, like 50 bucks an episode. Oh, easily. We would be millionaires. Could you imagine? We could finally get a swimming pool. Oh my God. Built in swimming pool. If you enjoy listening to us, you can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Rate us if you so choose. Ladies and gentlemen, good night. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Good night. Again. 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 Mm hmm.